You know, in my mind, I left the world of toxic conservatism a long time ago. And yet, what I failed to see is that I'm both the beneficiary of toxic masculinity mm. and its legacy is still prevalent in our congregations today. So while many, if not most of those listening to this conversation have been on board with what both of you have had to say, we may not realize just how much patriarchy has invasive roots in our lives. So can you speak to the most common unseen ways in which toxic masculinity still exists in our churches today. And Beth, we'll start with you. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's unseen. Just go pull up the Baptist churches in your area and scroll through the pictures of the staff. And I mean, even in churches that's, that with their mouth support women in ministry, but they don't hire women. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlor, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary a historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Well, our guest for this special live conversation is Dr. Beth Allison Barr and Reverend Dr. Meredith Stone. Beth is the professor of history at Baylor University and the associate dean of graduate studies. She's also the author of several books, including The Making of Biblical Womanhood. Meredith is the executive director of Baptist Women in Ministry. She is the former associate dean of academics and assistant professor of scripture and ministry at Logson Seminary of Hardin-Simmons University. Dr. Barr, Dr. Stone, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me. So great to join you all. For those that are joining us live, we want to remind you that uh, later on in the conversation, you might have a chance for us to present a question to those being interviewed. Uh, mm -hmm. So if you're on Facebook, you can comment to the right. If you're on YouTube, you can comment below. Uh, so, Beth, how, how are things deep in the heart of Texas? Well, they're hot today. I got really hot. So just in time for all the freshmen to move into Baylor next week, you know, okay. <laughs> have to welcome them with over 100 degrees. Well, I'm sure yet another year of trying to work through how do we do this COVID thing together, yes. and especially, uh, you know, the thought of all those students in dorms. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, and I live with them. I'm a faculty in residence, so I live with over 300 students. Well, Meredith, I could ask you the same question because, you know, despite the fact that you're in a different part of Texas, Texas decided it would take up half the continental United States and land sprawl. <laughs> so, so how are things with you? 
about the same. Yeah, my girls are getting ready to go back to school. Um, it's it's an interesting time to figure out how to have holistic health uh, yes. for our kids. You know, so for, for those of us that grew up in the conservative church tradition, we, we heard those token verses used to justify the exclusion of women and leadership of the church, uh, let alone the religiously motivated practices of gender inequality. You know, I could just close my eyes and I can remember church business meetings of my childhood in which the idea of women becoming deacons was shot down by some angry white guy who clearly had control issues, reading passages uh, from the writings of the Apostle Paul on why sh women should remain silent, not teach, and certainly submit to their, their husbands. You know, I ask this tongue in cheek, but but are you familiar with these token texts and uh, that are used to justify subjugated place of women, especially in the church home? But but in all seriousness, you know, why are those frequently quoted verses not saying what we think they're saying? Uh, Beth, we'll start with you. Yes, um, history, history matters. That's what I was trying to get across in the making of biblical womanhood and. Um, so much of what we have done with women in the modern evangelical church is read our own historical circumstances back into the text. And so if we actually take those texts and look at them from the first century standpoint, um, what we find is Paul could not have been telling women to be silent because he lets women speak throughout the throughout his letters. I mean, he entrusts Romans to Phoebe. Um, he lists Junia as an apostle. And so we know that Paul's not giving a directive for women to be silent for all times or for women not to lead because women lead and Paul acknowledges that they lead. So something else must be going on with these texts. And when we look at them from their historical context, what we find is that they are dealing with particular circumstances. And some of them, such as in Corinthians, um, Paul's using a typical rhetorical strategy where he is quoting the bad behavior of the Roman world and then correcting it and then saying, why are you doing this? Um, so, I, I mean, history is the reason that those texts don't say what we think they say. I love that you uh, you picked up on the, the Corinthian slogan idea with yeah. that text. That's one that I have followed as well. I mean, Paul oh. is going throughout this book telling them, you know, you've heard this, but hey, this is wrong. Yeah. You've heard this. And then right after he says it, he says, what? No, no. <laughs> Did the word of God originate with you? And of course, the you is a second masculine plural. Um, and so, you know, this idea of did the word of God originate with men or is it something that uh, not Paul, but in Acts, we see all sons and daughters called to prophesy. Yes. Um, I think that the big picture uh, of being able to see how we have picked and choose, mm -hmm. uh, how we have chosen these verses to highlight uh, just kind of reveals a lot about our interpretive methods. Yes. Um, that we are people who do that, who do pick and choose, because in First Timothy chapter five, you know, Paul says, you know, stop drinking only water, drink a little wine. It's good for your stomach. Do we view that as a universal imperative? <laughs> no, because we have done biblical interpretation. We're not reading it literally. We've done something in order to be able to understand it differently. And I think the same has been true with uh, the way we should be reading these verses about women and taking the whole corpus into account, uh, but we don't. Uh, and I, well, I think yeah. that I will, I will let Beth talk about it a lot more. But I honestly think it is surrounding this preservation of power. Yes, that at the heart of so many decisions about the Bible and about church structure, it's preservation of power um, and fear of losing that power. So, yeah. We're, we'll get to that uh, here in a little bit. Um, uh, we'll, we'll dive deep in that one. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, in addition to these texts uh, not saying what people often think they're mm -hmm. saying, we have a, a cavalcade of texts that amplify and endorse gender equality and female leadership. It, as Beth, as you mentioned, it's Phoebe who hand delivers the letter mm -hmm. to the Roman church. Historical precedence tells us that whoever delivered it was the one who read and preached it to the congregation. Yes. We have 
We have Paul and the letter of Galatians leveling the social playing field by saying that in Christ, there is no male or female, Greek mm -hmm. or Jew, slave or free. We're all one in Christ. I mean, for the love of God, it was women who preached to the pig-headed and fearful disciples that Jesus was not dead, but he is alive. Quite literally, the most important sermon ever preached. So, yes. so what are some of those other key verses we need to pay attention to? And, and, and also with that, why do you think that they are ignored by our conservative counterparts? And Meredith, we'll start with you with this question. Um, I, I think that... Uh, and I, I, I can't remember who you were calling attention to in, in the book as I was kind of skimming over that we need to pay just a lot more attention to Jesus yes. and what Jesus is doing, um, because we don't see any of these words coming out of Jesus's mouth. But instead, he is counterculturally welcoming women disciples. Uh, you know, we see it in Luke eight. We talk about the, the disciples were following Jesus and ministering with him and there were also some women who were a part of that big group of disciples who were supporting Jesus and joining in the work. Um, that's one of those pictures that I feel like can completely reorient even the images that we we have in our minds whenever we're thinking about Jesus's ministry. We tend to just see Jesus and then those those 12 guys there. But really, it was Jesus and a lot of people, men and women who were out there doing the work mm -hmm. together. Uh, and I think as, as we pay attention to some of those things in, in Jesus's own words and ministry, I think that could really also be helpful. Yeah. Beth? No, I completely agree. I also, you know, I think what we have done too is we've made Pauline theology inconsistent um, because when we look at what Paul's message is, Paul is calling for unity in the body of Christ. I mean, if we look in first Corinthians, when he talks about the body imagery, and that we are all, I mean, there is no hierarchy in the body imagery. He is saying we are all important in the kingdom of God. We are all important for the working of the church. And essentially stop saying that your gift is better than another gift. I mean, it really, he's fighting against hierarchy. And so it is so surprising to me that we are so insistent on reading hierarchy back into the text. I mean, you can even think about the creation order, which I I got caught in the New Yorker saying it was one of the silliest arguments I heard. And I guess so I've got to stay with that. But it is the creation order in Genesis, you know, using that to say that men should be the head because they were created first is such an inconsistent um, teaching and just doesn't make sense with any aspect of the Old Testament or the New Testament. So, I mean, I think what we have to ask ourselves is why are we fixated on these texts and why are we refusing to look and see where Paul calls women out as leaders? Why do we insist on seeing Martha as the hostess with the mostest when she was probably one of the you know uh, early church leaders? You know, she ran a ministry. Um, there's a lot of discussion about possibly what that was, but she was a leader in the early church. Um, and if, as a woman in charge of her household at that time was not the person who would have been cooking the dinner either. Um, and so we just, we see Martha in the way that we want to see her. And so we see her as a woman in the kitchen um, serving the men who are sitting at the table and being leaders. And we totally carry that to the text. So um, I think it's, again, it's those cultural blinders that we put on because they fit our cultural um, agenda. They fit what we are trying to trying to accomplish in the you know in our current situation. So so you know, as, as you've just conveyed clearly and, and written on in brilliant details, um, so much of our conservative counterparts understanding of gender roles, stems from biblical misinterpretation, uh, the forced agenda of cultural perspectives. Um, however, the common churchgoer is not always equipped for biblical criticism and exegetical study. You know, for many, they fear they're asking, you're asking them to not believe in what the Bible says by looking right. at it critically. You know, the attitude is, look, it, you know, it, it's right there. It says it right there. You know, really at, at the root of these perspectives, is, is a doctrine of biblical inerrancy. And inerrancy <laughs> itself 
is it's not a modern concept, but one that's really been driven home among evangelicals coming out of the Enlightenment in just the last two centuries. I guess we can dive a little deeper here. Why is theologically the doctrine of inerrancy a key piece in the mechanism of toxic masculinity and patriarchy when it comes to biblical interpretation? Uh, Beth, we'll start with you. Yes, inerrancy is fun. Um, you know, I keep reminding people that inerrancy is a historical word. It's a word that has a history. It's not a word that we find in the Bible. It's not a word that we find really used until, I'm, of course, I'm a medieval historian. So, you know, everything's modern to me after 1500. So um, so it's a, it's a modern term from my perspective that we, that we don't really see all that much before. Um, so the question is why, why do we do this? And I think a lot of it has to do with the, um, with the multiplication of Bible translations. And when, because there's a lot, when we think about who controls the Bible translations and the messages that they want to convey, and we think about with the Reformation and we think about the Geneva Bible, um, in which it was being, the translation was controlled by a lot of seditious people who were upset with the, um, the, with the kings and with the divine right of kings. And so they were attempting to convey a message in the, in the text that they used. And this was actually something that people learned, that we can control the, the narrative about what people believe by controlling the text of the Bible. I mean, this is a really scary lesson that we see people learned um, in the Reformation. And I think it really came home like in the 19th century where we see a lot of what we call, you know, this conservative biblical womanhood is really born in the 19th century. Um, and it's at a time when masculine power, if we think about in Western Europe, where women were legally, um, had, were legally the status of children and there was a, you know, a great effort poured into keeping women out of leadership positions, keeping women out of political positions, making, keeping women out of education, um, not allowing them to, to take, you know, essentially when work moved outside the home, the problem was, is you had to have somebody to take care of the home um, so that, you know, so that the work could continue. And if you allowed women to move outside of the home, like men did with the work, then who's going to do those other jobs? And so what we see is this very clear um, structures created to try to create these roles where women are divinely ordained to be in the home, whereas men are divinely ordained to work outside the home. And the Bible is adjusted to fit that. Um, so which I think, you know, if we can get that point across to, to folk, you know, that actually what they are reading in the Bible is not actually what you know that that there has been so much done to these texts in the bible to make them say possibly the opposite of what they intended um so you know it's the literal and plain plain and literal interpretation is really the interpretation that wasn't what paul intended um which i find highly ironic yeah kind of harken back to um you know, at some point during the printing, this idea of the authorized version of the Bible gets yes. put in one copy of King James Version. And, you know, for every century after that, you know, this is this is the text. Meredith, take, take us a little deeper here too. you know, looking at uh, why the theology of uh, the doctrine of inerrancy is is a key piece on, on the mechanism of toxic masculinity and patriarchy when it comes to biblical interpretation. In some ways, I think that inerrancy became what it is out of fear yes. um people i think tend to feel like if you begin to shake a little bit on something that they feel like is their foundation that the whole thing's going to fall apart and when we start trying to look at passages with a little with a critical eye to history with a critical eye to context then for a lot of people that feels like we're shaking the leg on their chair and that if that chair if it gets too loose it's going to collapse and so this that the bible has been so tied to our our identity and the way we understand it in christ um, and so that idea of inerrancy helps people have that assurance of i'm believing the right thing everything's going to be okay rather than having a a desire to really grow there's a comfort in saying, 
we got it. We've got the authority. We've got the, the authorized uh, kind of idea. And this helped the people who were in power structures to be able to say, that is the way it is. You have to read it this way, which is interesting because for Baptists, we, we come out of this tradition of the priesthood of all believers, but yeah. really inerrancy became this tool that was coming down from power to say, this is the way you have to interpret it in order to be right. Yeah. Rather than truly honoring that soul freedom uh, that we talk about so much as Baptists. Uh, so I think, I think it became a tool. People, uh, they know how foundational the Bible is to the way we understand our faith. And that consciously or unconsciously helped power to maintain uh, the boundaries that it wanted to maintain so that it stayed in power, which was white males. Yes, I mean, it's tied up with racism. I mean, we have to put that Absolutely, absolutely. And errancy was used to keep, you know, slaves, to maintain slave ownership um, or the concept of this, we have to read the text this literally because that is what um, they built, um, you know, the American South on, so. Mm. I, I, just two small personal notes. Number one, as I'm sitting here taking notes, I'm laughing at myself because as if I can't watch this later on, um, instead I'm writing down what y'all are saying as you're saying it, like this is amazing. Uh, the second thing is, Meredith, I love when you put rightness in quotes, like totally that was the whole reason, like, yeah, we want to be right, we want to be in control, which, you know, maybe pushes pushes us a little further down, you know, the in the conversation of, you know, at its core, is inerrancy really just about control and lack of faith? And really, is it about idolizing <laughs> the Bible versus worshiping the God that inspired it? I, I think that that is a great insight. Um, I, I tend to, I, I used to say to my students, there's a reason it's called faith and not certainty. Right. You know, we want it to be certainty, but there's a reason why it's faith. We have to have belief. It's okay when things don't fit together because that's when we actually have to have faith. Um, but instead it's been turned into, um, something that we have to have the, the scientific method and the proof and, and all of these things to line up. Um, and I really like a God that is inviting faith um, and giving space for that relationship to evolve. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Peter Renz has got a brilliant book called The Sin of Certainty. And I was just really, thinking that. <laughs> yeah, it, it takes us uh, so deep. So, um, so if you know that the sacred texts are influenced by the culture they're written, and if we know that these texts were written in a highly patriarchal society, then how do we, how do we equip our people to see that sifting out and setting aside the patriarchal lens of the writers is a part of being faithful to the text? Uh, Meredith, we'll start with you. Oh, I thought that was going to be a Beth start question. <laughs> Let me start would, on this one. <laughs> all right, Beth, you go. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was just going to say, I, I don't, I think we, we don't have to worry about the patriarchy that's in the text. I mean, they're written in a patriarchal world um, and patriarchy is clearly, I mean, has been with us from the beginning of history. I think what we can see is that even within the patriarchy of the Bible, we see we see God always raising up women and we see God always pushing women and elevating them in ways that their patriarchal world would not have normally done. And so we have this very clear line, you know, that we can, we can trace throughout the Bible. I mean, I think about Hagar, um, you know, Hagar, who is, if we think about the impact of patriarchy on a woman's life, I mean, she was essentially put in a situation she didn't want to be in. She was raped. She had the child that they wanted, but then she was thrown out um, because, I mean, she was abandoned. You know, she did everything that they wanted her to do, not of her own decision. And she was, you know, treated as property because that's the way that she was regarded. And we have God comes to her and says he's going to take care of her. And she says, you are a God who sees. And. He, God sees women. I mean, God sees women in the way that culture, that history does not see women. And it's just remarkable to me. It's really hard for me to read the Bible without seeing how God sees women. So I, I guess the patriarchy in the Bible doesn't bother me. 
because I know that the Bible was written through people and that God allows, you know, it speaks in the, the culture, the time that it was written. But then we also see this amazing, um, you know, in every aspect of the Bible, we see God seeing women and raising women up and, and, and helping women um, in ways that their, their culture wouldn't have really done. So I don't know if that helps. So it, I guess it doesn't, it doesn't bother me to point out the patriarchy in the Bible because running alongside it is this thread of God seeing women. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think this goes back to your part of your question before, which was uh, for our people who don't have the, the critical tools for interpreting the Bible, how do we help them understand what's going on here? Um, and, and I think that even for folks who aren't necessarily reading the commentaries or, or, or reading uh, all of these different aspects of the text, simply by asking folks to read the text closely and remove their preconceived notions about it, they're going to realize how much their interpretations have been influenced by what other people have told them. Yeah. All you have to do is sit down and, and read a few verses into Mark and go, wait a second, where's the birth narrative? What, how is this a picture of Jesus without the birth narrative to realize that that has been implanted in us as you can't know the story unless you know the birth narrative? Well, Mark's readers did. They knew who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing. And so it, it kind of reveals that effect that all of the teaching, all of the cultural forces have even had on our interpretation just the same way that they were having the force on the writing, the translation of the Bible itself. And so just as Beth said, I, I always like to help people by thinking in terms of the plurality that we see within the Bible. In, in one place, yeah, you'll see that um, this, this kind of predeterministic theology of if you do this, if you do this bad thing, bad things are going to happen to you. But then in the Bible, you see where this guy, Job, does no bad thing and bad things still happen to him. And that's in the same Bible. So we get a, a plurality that helps us understand the interpretation that's necessary when we see women like, like Deborah and Huldah uh, and, and the wise women of Tekoa in the Old Testament. We see them existing alongside the laws, which have these wild things that they are mm -hmm. saying about women where you have to marry your rapist. And right. We're not asking people to read that literally. We're doing interpretation. So even just thinking about how do I remove some of those preconceived ideas and then think about the plurality that we find within the library that is the Bible itself can help us to see a lot goes into our interpretive efforts. Mm. Yeah. I like, I like to remind folks around here uh, during crawfish season, if we really want to hold true to the Levitical laws and we don't want to be an abomination and, and enjoy those crawfish. So, uh, That's hey, not going to get you very far. No, yeah. no. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, 
free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This week's CBF podcast conversation is brought to you by the Youth Theology Network. They're a resource for helping high school students understand if God is calling them to ministry. Their online hub is where you can connect with programs across the country, direct students to programs that meet their needs, read inspiring stories, and find vocational discernment resources. As a mentor to high school students who are considering ministry, you know your work is important, but it can also be lonely and overwhelming. With YTN, you'll find the information you need for building or scaling your vocational discernment programs, as well as resources to help students take their next faithful step. To awaken what's possible for high school students in your life, please visit youththeologynetwork.org. That's youththeologynetwork.org. In the book, uh, you, uh, you, you lay out the evidence of how culture has influenced biblical interpretation. Mm-hmm. And it's oh so ironic that, that conservative Christians uh, especially talk about being in the world but not of the world. And yet their cultural views of marriage and gender roles uh, maybe have shaped their biblical views versus the Bible shaping their view of these things. So walk right. us through some of the key cultural moments that have promoted the patriarchal worldview. Um, let's start with uh, the time of, of biblical composition. Um, Beth, walk us through some of the examples here. <laughs> well, I mean, in the Greco-Roman world, in the ancient world, women were considered to be inferior to men, literally. Their bodies were inferior. Um, this is not, the Greco-Roman world isn't the only culture that promotes this, but it was very, um, you know, this idea that women's bodies are are not formed as well as men, that they are imperfect men, and that the reason that, and that women are weaker um, because their, their bodies are not formed well. I mean, we have, you know, Aristotle, he says it's a happy circumstance because otherwise we wouldn't have procreation, but at the same time that there's something wrong with women. And this was the idea that was carried through the medieval world. I mean, the medieval world also did not allow women to be ordained. I use the word ordained lightly because ordination has a history too. Um, and so it really doesn't come about until the you know central middle ages where we have firm ideas in the Western church about ordination. Um, but nonetheless, women couldn't be ordained because their bodies were seen as impure. And they were, again, they were not, they were weaker than men's and they were not as perfect as men's. Um, But at the same time, the medieval world also saw that women could overcome those weaknesses with their body. That, you know, the problem, the reason women can't have the same authority as men in the church is because their bodies are broken. But if a woman overcomes her broken body, then she can have the authority of men. And this is how they explained Mary Magdalene. This is how they explained all of those amazing virgin martyr saints who killed dragons and preached on the shores of France and converted thousands of people to Christianity. Um, these were women who overcame their feminine weakness and, um, and were able to speak with the authority of men and with you know, the approval of God. Uh, after the Reformation, though, an interesting thing happens with the priesthood of all believers. And, the, you know, I, I write in the book that the, that the Reformation theology really should have set women free because it said that women are, um, are made in the image of God, just like men, and that women are, you know, come to God just like men. You know, they don't need an intercessor in between them. Uh, But the problem with this is that then what would keep women from being preachers? What would keep women? And and we have all these great 17th century women, all these Baptist preaching women who thought that they could do this because Reformation theology set them free. But the patriarchal constraints of their world held them back. And they had to come up with a new idea about why women couldn't preach, teach, and lead. And this is when they introduce this new idea that it is the divinely created um, space for women to be separate from men, that women, instead of women being broken men, 
women are now created so differently from men that they have a completely different purpose. And women's purpose, because their bodies give birth to children, they're clearly, that's their job. That's their only job. Um, and so their job is to take care of the home and children and support men. And so we see this evolution of this new idea to maintain this old structure of patriarchy, uh, that women are divinely created by God to be less than men and or to, you know, to have a different role from men, you know, separate but equal language. I, I don't understand how modern Christians don't hear women have are equal in image, but separate in roles and don't hear the civil rights movement. I mean, I just, I just don't understand how we don't hear that. Um, but in the 19th century, this, this language about women being separate and being divinely created different really became um, entrenched itself in Western Christianity. And um, it, you know, we got a little bit away from it after the suffrage movement and with uh, the coming of World War I but after World War II, we needed to get those men back into jobs and we see the language revert itself back to women are created differently from men. Women are created for home, men are created for work. And uh, this the Christianity latches on to this message. Um, and we begin to see as Baptists know well, we begin to see the push of women out of the pulpit in the late in the in the 1970s, um, at the same time that the Equal Rights Amendment is being defeated. So, I mean, all of these historical puzzle pieces just fit together to let us see that what is going on with biblical womanhood and women's roles in the church has much more to do with history than it does to do with the Bible. Yeah, I find it so interesting, the argument that if we are to empower women, we're actually giving into culture. Because if you look at studies... <laughs> of even yes. 2021, women are still, there's still a bias that exists against women in the workplace, yes. uh, a bias that against women in leadership. Um, and so it, it's the opposite. We are actually countercultural when we are empowering women. Um, right. But in the same way that you mentioned about the women finding a way, right? Uh, yeah. To alter yeah. their bodies or whatever. I, I think we see something similar today when women try to adopt some of the characteristics or ways that are typically associated with masculine and are able to, to try and negotiate their world in that way. And I think especially probably in the early time as women in ministry were really starting to get going, I've heard a lot of women say, I was only taught to preach as a man. I was only taught yes. to preach by men and how men yeah. preach. I never heard women's voices. I never knew that I could have my own voice, that mm -hmm. I could lead in, in a, a way that is truly me, whether that be culturally feminine or culturally masculine, that I could lead out of an authentic voice to who I am. Um, and I feel like that's the goal that I wish somehow we could get to uh, because we, we see it today, you know, it, it, in this way of negotiating, of trying to mimic those in power that helps move us forward. But that's exactly just reinforcing in some ways that power structure. And we want to find that way where we can each express the way we've been created in the image of God in order mm -hmm. to participate in what God's doing in the world. Yes. So we mentioned some, you know, ancient aspects. We kind of worked our way at least up to the 70s. Uh, what are some <laughs> modern cultural influences of the patriarchal worldview among Christians today? Uh, Meredith, we'll let you take take first glance at this one. I, I think that I, I don't know that you can truly separate today from the 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, while I think it is not as prevalently talked about, I think there still is an undercurrent. So many of our structures that exist today in our organizations were built upon foundations that were patriarchal in nature uh, before women had opportunity to be a part of the building of the very institutions that we live in right now. So many of our congregations um, began in the 19th century, maybe the, the 20th century, um, and our founding documents, church 
bylaws, church constitutions are going to be reflective of that structural patriarchy that is in effect. And so I, I think that while it may be a, a little less in the forefront, it still exists. And there are still things structurally that need to be addressed in our present day in order to begin uh, cultivating environments in our organizations, our institutions, in our congregations that are truly empowering all people, all people created in God's image. Yeah. Beth? Yeah, no, I, while you were talking, Meredith, I was thinking about the WMU. Um, you know, the WMU was a really powerful force in, um, for Baptist women. And when it was at the height of sort of its authority and its, um, you know, it's, I, I, I don't know if the control is the right word, but its influence in the Baptist church is in the early 20th century. And this is also the time that we see more Baptist women in the pulpit and that we see Baptist women who are leaders um, in the early church. And I can't help think as a historian that it has something to do with that, um, with that female organization in the church that really did wield power equal to the deacons. And so we had a body of women that, um, that were able to, you know, to make decisions on their own within the church, that were able to, um, you know, to have a voice that was listened to by the, by the male leaders in the church. So even if they weren't the deacons, they were as influential as the deacons in many churches. I mean, that's one of the things we also see in history is that women may not always carry the titles that men do, but they often do the work and sometimes have the uh, influence and authority of men. And so we see this with the WMU. But if we look in churches today, Baptist churches today, you know, the WMU is a thing of the past. It's not something that is really, you know, really lost influence um, in the latter half of the 20th century. And part of this, I think, was this growing conservative, I have to say this carefully, but it was the growing conservative movement on the importance of the family and the importance that women's job, primary job was to their children and not beyond. Because, I mean, the WMU called women really your work is beyond your family. It's beyond, you know, that's part of it, but it was outward looking. And what we saw happening in the 70s and 80s is an inward focus on uh, inside churches where everybody was to turn to their family. And that was what you're supposed to focus on. That's your first ministry. And we see some of these mission organizations and these, um, you know, these outward looking organizations like the WMU, they, they, they disappear. And with them also disappears a lot of women's influence within the um, within the modern church. So I don't know. That may have been a tangent, but that's what I was thinking about, Meredith. I was just yeah. like, oh, my gosh, can we revive the WMU? <laughs> yeah. And, and along those lines, when when we look at the history of Baptist Women in Ministry as an organization, it really grew out of the strength of the WMU at, at yeah. the time. Yeah. Carolyn Weatherford Crumpler was yeah. leading the National WMU group, and she was formative in, in arranging some of the conferences and was mm -hmm. one of the founding mothers of Baptist Women in Ministry. So it was a place where women were able to find that strength and right. empowerment. Yes. And then they actually wanted to use it in, in various ways. And so it, in many ways, I think of WMU as a, a origin point for what we're doing today as Baptist yeah. Women in Ministry. No, it is. I mean, and with the disappearance of the WMU too, it also, we see a change in church service structure where the, the focal point of most services um, is really the sermon that focuses on the, the male body, the male preacher, you know, in many of these conservative churches, whereas the space that some of these other um, organizations often had, like the WMU that would often read the meeting notes or would give the prayer or would do things like that in the service, and they don't do it anymore. And so the mm -hmm. emphasis on the, um, you know, it, it, the emphasis eroded to just a handful of only the male leaders who were left on the stage. So, mm -hmm. you know, in, in my mind, I left the world of toxic conservatism a long time ago. And yet, what I failed to see is that I'm both the beneficiary of toxic masculinity mm. and its legacy is still prevalent in our congregations today. So while mm -hmm. many, if not most of those listening to this conversation 
have been on board with what both of you have had to say, we may not realize just how much patriarchy has invasive roots in our lives. So can you speak to the most common unseen ways in which toxic masculinity still exists in our churches today? And Beth, we'll start with you. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's unseen. Just go pull up the Baptist churches in your area and scroll through the pictures mm. of the staff. And I mean, even in churches that's, that with their mouth support women in ministry, but they don't hire women. Um, they don't, you know, women for some reason are not as called as often as men are called um, to Baptist churches. I mean, there were, at one point, a couple of years ago, there were like more than 400 Baptist churches in Texas. Uh, Mary, you might know this better. I just remember reading this and just being appalled that didn't have, that didn't have a pastor. And uh, there's more women than that who have um, recognized the call in their life and have been ordained who, who simply aren't being hired by those churches. So, I mean, I think that's the, we've just, we've got to put our money where our mouth is. And um, in order, if we believe women are called to preach, teach, and lead, we need to let women preach, teach, and lead. And we need to figure out what's going on in our churches that's keeping us from hiring women and keeping us from putting women in leadership positions. So yeah. hold, hold tight, because we're gonna we're gonna spend a second where we're just <laughs> we're gonna zero in and we're gonna magnify our beloved fellowship itself and talk about that. Um, you know, so but Meredith, you know, go ahead with a question. Yeah, I, I I wanna I wanna say this delicately, but I also feel like sometimes it's okay to call some things out. Um, in the the Baptist churches that I know, Andy, as you're talking about, um, some of our our strongest male supporters of women in ministry, um, I'll hear something like, "Oh." we don't need to have women preach regularly. We had a woman preach last year. <laughs> and, and it's, it's not enough. You know, we're, we're trying to swing the pendulum to help people reimagine leadership, to help people reimagine what God's mm -hmm. beloved community looks like. And one time every couple of years is not going to be enough. Um, a, another thing that, that I've, I hear is, well, we just want to treat women equally to how we treat men. That's a good first step, but it's not going to get us that pendulum swing that we need. We need equitable treatment. Mm -hmm. And so I, I thought that um, whenever the, the uh, stories came out about Dr. Jill Biden and wanting to be called doctor and, and how that resonated within our community, I thought it was very brave of Mark Wingfield. Uh, with Baptist News Global to say, I didn't get it before I get it now. Mm -hmm. That he used to tell the pastoral residents who were women, oh, we don't do titles. You don't need to have people call you pastor or reverend. We just call everybody right. by their first name. Um, and that he now is doing an about face and saying, I get it. Mm -hmm. Even if we didn't do it for men, we need to do it for women because women need, to, our community needs to hear that from us so that they can know that women are in leadership in that place. And that, I think that's part of that equity yes. that we're seeking, which has to swing the pendulum a little bit so that even, you know, I appreciate the question, Andy, even our strongest male supporters can be figuring out ways to, to go a little further. Yeah. You know, when, when that whole thing with Joe Biden came out, you know, selfishly, I'm getting an EDD right now. So I was like, hey, my bruised ego <laughs> needs to be called doctor, too. So, let yeah, we need to recognize this as a as an official degree. So so I am so proud uh, to be part of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, uh, a network of churches that over 30 years ago said we believe that women, too, are called to ministry. We also have less than 7% of our congregations with female senior pastors. Mm -hmm. So it's sad that I can say on just a couple of hands, pastors, which are profound influencers, mentors, and colleagues of mine. I think of people like Carol McIntyre, Courtney mm -hmm. Allen Crump, and Emily Hull McGee, uh, just to name a few. The lack of female senior pastors in CBF life is overwhelming evidence unto itself. 
that patriarchy still has deep roots in our congregations, whether we realize it or whether we want to mm -hmm. admit to it. So how do congregations begin to identify gender uh, inequality blind spots? Meredith, will you go first on this one? Yeah, I, I think uh, for a long time, we've talked about helping churches put women in senior leadership positions. And we need to keep talking about that. Uh, we need to absolutely be doing that. But I think we might begin to see even more growth in that area if we also start working on our congregational cultures. Mm -hmm. uh, for so many churches, you know, they, they're open to women in ministry. Maybe they've had women deacons for years that they've ordained. They've had women on staff, but they haven't done some of that really hard work of, of paying attention to every space within their congregation and, and doing the work to make those more egalitarian spaces. So then when it comes time to hire a senior pastor, we either hear, well, we're just not ready yet, um, or we'll have a church that takes a, a leap of faith and does hire a woman, but then she gets there and, and the culture mm -hmm. is so permeated by the, the patriarchal structures that have been there that she just faced obstacle after mm -hmm. obstacle. And so I think we're, we're going to begin to make even more progress as we, we do both, as we continue to advocate and push for the, the women to be in senior leadership positions, which helps so much in creating those imaginations. But we also think ground up and we also begin to think, how can we transform our congregational culture swing that pendulum so that when it does come time for senior leadership it, it truly is while, while some would say you know oh well, it, we just consider women and men equally well if we're really going to consider women and men equally then we have to think about the women differently that's equity we're going to have to look at their resumes differently we're going to have to realize that they have had obstacles that male candidates haven't had and I think if we do the work in our congregational cultures, that can help us begin to take that next step. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on with that. Um, you know, recently I, I read not too long ago and it was just so accurate. I read Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger's, you know, a church called Tove. And one of the things they argue in it is that uh, church culture is, has to change before we really are going to start getting women in leadership positions, which is exactly what Meredith said. So why are we going to have a church um, accept a woman to preach every Sunday if most of the people in the congregation haven't heard women teach or preach on any sort of regular basis? I mean, why, are, why do we expect that they may realize that women can do this job really well if we haven't had women on our finance committees um, showing that they know how to keep accounting of the church, that we, I mean, if we don't have them in every space of leadership showing that even if they might do it differently than men, they can do it and they can do the job, um, then we're not going to be ready to have a woman in the pulpit uh, because the church congregation still has not seen a woman doing those things. So, I mean, I, I, I think what Meredith said is exactly right. We have to get in all of those areas of our churches, we have to let women lead. And we have to let women lead with their gifts. Um, and, you know, in all of the spaces that may have traditionally been male. There's a fascinating part of the book um, when you write about the connection between racism and patriarchy. Um, mm -hmm. And that is a conversation that we could dedicate a whole live, you know, conversation unto itself. Um, you yeah. know, in the book, you use the terminology of layered oppression. Uh, yeah. What is the intersectionality of these two things, <laughs> racism and, and, and patriarchy? Yeah, well, I mean, they simply go together. I mean, this is something that women's historians have known from the very beginning. I mean, Gerda Lerner and her really great, The Creation of Patriarchy, one of the things is that she found is that these is that the emphasis on, on hierarchies, on patriarchal hierarchies, goes along with an emphasis that some people within that culture are better than other people, are more, be, you know, more able to lead than other people, um, which is, you know, which is racism. And so they simply go together. You can't disconnect them whatsoever. 
Um, and it also plays into, I mean, if we think about racism in the U.S. and we think about church culture in the U.S., I mean, I have a good historian friend um, who said with the civil rights movement, she said, hey, look, when they couldn't, when these conservative places couldn't say they were better than black people anymore, then they had to say that they, at least they were better than women. And so, I mean, it's just, it's sort of this, this power structure and the intersectionality of it is that black women have this double burden on them. Not only do they have the pressure of racism on them, but then they also have the pressure of being a woman in a male space. And so black women have an even harder, I mean, this is something too, that I think about in about why the making of biblical woman had, I mean, it's exploded out there in a way I never could have imagined, but there's a lot of black women's voices who have said similar things who aren't getting at all the attention that I'm getting. And I'm white, I'm a white woman, and I would be blind to think that that wasn't part of the reason. Uh, you know, I really tried to bring out, I've, uh, you know, Betty Collier Thomas wrote just an amazing book years ago called um, Daughters of Thunder, where she just brought out all these black female vo preacher voices from the 19th and the 20th century. And this book is so out of print that it costs like hundreds of dollars to even try to find a copy of it. And, you know, it's and it didn't sell very much at all when it first came out. Nobody cared about black women preaching. Um, so, I mean, that those are structural problems that we have to figure out, you know, why don't we buy black women's books? Why don't we buy black? Why don't we listen to black women preaching? Um, so we, we've got to address that. And it has to do with this, these power dynamics. And so even as you know, we're three white people sitting here, and we have to realize the power dynamics that has enabled us to have to have a voice where people of color do not. Um, so, I mean, it's a, hard, it's a hard lesson. It's something that we have to, we have to be consci conscious of. Um, and it's a question I ask myself all the time, why does my voice matter here? And a lot of it is because, you know, I'm, I'm, a, a, white, I'm a white woman and that's why people are listening to me more. Well, we, we also have to point out the irony that we're talking about patriarchy, toxic masculinity, and the making of women, biblical womanhood, and I'm on this conversation. So. <laughs> it's okay. I yeah. mean, we all, we all have to be part of the solution. So, yeah. Uh, Meredith, yeah. Uh, thoughts on the question? I, I think that was a beautiful answer. Yeah. Power breeds power. Uh, mm -hmm. when a, it, It's seductive. And I, I think that it's one of the reasons we see abuses of power uh, in leadership positions, even within congregations, because it power breeds power. And so that's yeah. a part of patriarchy and racism being tied so closely together. But my experience of patriarchy is not my, my black and brown sisters experience of patriarchy. Right. Uh, yeah. And so we do, we absolutely have to listen to them. Uh, some of the, the, the voices that have influenced me most would be Renita Weems, yeah. uh, Shanika Walker Barnes, mm -hmm. um, Wilfa Gaffney. Yes. Uh, these are women who are writing in that space and really challenging white women uh, who we have the best intentions, but sometimes we, we wind up not seeing the way our privilege is giving us that advantage. And so we, we, have, to, we have to be very mindful of it and we repent whenever we do that and we own it with one another and then we go back and we listen and, and we yep. try to find ways uh not just to to uh reconcile but to repair yes. uh, what we have done yeah that's exactly right and anyway there's so many um i was thinking of clarice martin who is this you know fantastic historian who wrote this one of the best articles i've ever read on why why women why Paul's not telling women to submit and she ties it into racism and mm. she calls out black preachers who still preach female subordination, but then do not, you know, then of course say it doesn't matter for the, the passages about um, slavery. And she was, she's like, how, you know, how can you even do that? So and these fantastic voices that we've ignored as a white church community. Mm. Yeah. I'd be remiss too. If we talk about you know the layers of uh, patriarchy and discrimination is certainly mm -hmm. that extends to uh homophobia and discrimination against the lgbtq community 
uh, which again, that conversation unto itself could be an entire conversation when it comes to, to patriarchy. So not to skirt that uh, simply, maybe we can have that conversation uh, next time. Either one of these, um, pick these up. Get to our last question here, which is uh, in CBF life, many have experienced fundamentalism and the attacks of fundamentalists. They have questioned our faith. They've yeah. said that we don't believe the Bible and treated us as not real Christians. Uh, Beth, you're you're now on the receiving end of uh, really personal yeah. attacks from fundamentalists, now uh, dubbed Theo Bros. Um, what are you learning from how you handle uh, this type of crisis and conflict? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, what what we have to realize, and Meredith said this early on, is I have to remember that they're speaking from a place of fear, mm. that I've just challenged what their identity is based on. And so, um, and that actually does help me when I think about it, because sometimes I think uncharitable thoughts about some of these people. Um, and then I think about it and I'm like, you know what, they're afraid. And I can understand when I've been uncharitable because I've been afraid. And, and they're afraid because their God is small and they don't realize yet that God is big enough for, for this and that God has always called women. And if they recognize that, then as I said, it's going to completely, un I mean, it's going to pull the rug out of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I mean, why else do they exist? Um, except for to, you know, it's going to pull the rug out of the Gospel Coalition. I mean, it's written into their gospel statement that you have to believe in male headship and female subordination. Um, you know, it's going to pull the plug on the ESV. <laughs> mm. So it's power and they're afraid. And so I try to remember that. I try to remember that to help me be charitable about it. Um, uh, sometimes I'm not always successful in that. But at the same time, the people who are there are more people who have read my book who it has helped mm. than, and that actually I know because I'm like, okay, I knew this was coming because I challenged this power structure, but it is helping, it's helping women. And so at the end of the day, I just remember, I read all my messages that I've gotten from women all over the place, just telling me how much it's helped them. So get, do that. Keep that in mind. Yeah, there's yeah. there's one woman who <laughs> recently graduated from the seminary where I taught um, that this book has been something that she felt like not only empowered her and gave her this freedom to own her ministry, but which she just started buying copies of and sending <laughs> to people everything they would say <laughs> because it is so accessible and it is helping people to understand uh, something that maybe we haven't presented in in this way uh, that really people can read and hear these stories. And so kudos to you for keeping that Jesus-like attitude and keep remembering you, you have done a great work here. Thank you. Yeah, I try. I don't always. There are moments that I think uncharitable thoughts. <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> yeah, you know, at the same time, I'm sitting here thinking, listen to Meredith give you high praise. And, you know, Meredith is the head of an organization that is pushing congregations forward. And she absorbs so many slings and arrows mm -hmm. from uh, small-minded control freaks who uh, don't believe in, essentially, I would say, the Bible. So Meredith, mm -hmm. kudos and all heaps and praises to you for the way that you uh, take many of the blows so that others can can propel themselves mm -hmm. forward in ministry. So. Okay. Um, we need to pause to tell you about our final uh, sponsor, which is not going to play Baylor in any kind of way of sports. So we'll stop bringing you back to Baylor sports. <laughs> uh, this podcast is bringing you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be compassionate, more faithful, and just. Utilizing a highly skilled network of consultants and intentional interim ministers, the center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they faced. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and can be your trusted partner in ministry. Well, the book is The Making of Biblical Womanhood. Our guests have been Beth Allison Barr and Meredith Stone. You can check out their respective works at bethallisonbarr.com and bwim.info. Dr. Barr, 
Reverend Dr. Stone, thank you for making the time to have this conversation. We are grateful for your revolutionary wisdom, voice, and leadership in making a more just and equitable world. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Programs include a 75-hour Master of Divinity degree with concentration in BSK's areas of emphasis, including black church studies, rural ministry, and pastoral care. For ordained ministers or lay leaders alike, BSK offers nine-hour certificates in black church studies, rural ministries, and pastoral care, as well as two exploring ministry certificates for general ministry training. BSK also offers additional subject-specific training with Flourish workshops in subjects such as Introduction to Youth Ministry, Essentials in Youth Ministry, and the upcoming The Flight of the Soul of America. Now enrolling for fall 2022. Apply today at bsk.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support. 